Um, it is, it's a joy to be in the Word of God with you tonight. Would you turn with me to Galatians? Uh, Galatians chapter... I want you to look at verse 419 because really all, all this sermon is going to do is pick up on what John MacArthur did uh, in the very first message of this conference. And uh, really I'm going to do exactly what he did. My introduction is going to be most of the sermon. And, and when, I, when I get to the text, I, I hope that what we have done already will have preached the text for you. But here's the text we're going to work in. I want you to look at Ephesians 4.19, then Ephesians 5, uh, sorry, Galatians 4.19, Galatians 5.1, and then we're going to pick up with Galatians 5.13 and read to the end of the chapter. Now, let me, let me say before we even get there, in this passage, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church is the answer to both antinomianism and legalism. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church is the answer to both antinomianism and legalism. The work of the Holy Spirit sets you free. Sets you free from what? Sets you free from being conformed to the image of God? No, 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 no. Sets you free from bondage to sin and the yoke of the Mosaic ceremonial code. But it sets you free to be what God created and redeemed you to be. The freedom of the Spirit is finally to be out under from the bondage of sin, the condemnation of the law, so that you can finally be what God created and redeemed you to be. And Paul's going to explain that brilliantly in this passage. So let's go back to the, to the verse that John pointed us to on the very first night as, as really marching orders for ministry. Galatians 4.19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. So that's, that's what he wants. He wants Christ to be formed in them. Notice 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, 
envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word tonight, we would ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but your word stands forever. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the theme of this conference, I Will Build My Church. I love the emphases of the plenaries so far. Tonight, I have been asked to speak on the power of the church, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I I couldn't have said it as well as that. The, The plenary itself preaches a sermon. And I want you to note what has happened so far in the conference in the plenary messages. We have looked at the sanctification of the church. We've looked at the life of the church, the unity of the church, the conviction and courage of the church, the mark of a true church, the influence of a church, and now, tonight, the power of the church. Now, as pastors... Dr. MacArthur reminded us in his first message that what we want for our members is what Paul speaks of in Galatians 4.19. We want Christ formed in them. That's what we want to see happen through our ministry to the believers in our congregation. How does that happen? Well... Let me put the question another way. By what power are believers remade in the image of God, filled up to the fullness of God, conformed to the image of Christ? And the answer to that question is summarized beautifully in the title of my assigned subject tonight. What is the power of the church? The ministry of of the Holy Spirit. That's that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6, we are ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of 
the Spirit. And like in this passage where he emphasizes that the Spirit of the Lord brings freedom, notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. Just like he says here in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. Now, have you ever thought about how often this emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant is emphasized in both the Old and the New Testaments? It's it's remarkable. Ezekiel prophesying of what he called the everlasting covenant says this about the formative power of the Holy Spirit in the people of God. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." This is exactly what Isaiah is talking about in, this is exactly what Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, as he anticipates what he calls the new covenant. Look at his words in Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Note that the prophets conceive this as uniquely the work of the Spirit. And note that they characterize their own ministries as ministries of the Spirit. For instance... Think of how Micah speaks about himself and his mission in Micah chapter 3, verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Or think of what Zechariah says from the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by human strength, not by human power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then turn with me to Joel. Turn with me to Joel chapter 2 as he looks forward to what the Lord is going to do in days to come. And Joel says this, and it's quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2. It will come about after this, Joel 2, 28, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. So the, the later prophets conceive of their ministries in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit being operative. And they look forward to a time 
when the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be operative in a very unique and pervasive way in the people of God. So it will not surprise you at all that when you open up your Bible to Luke chapter 1, just go ahead and turn there to Luke 1, it will not surprise you at all that when God sends the, who is simply called in uh, Luke chapter 1 to begin with, the angel of the Lord to tell Zacharias and Elizabeth about John the Baptist's birth and his purpose in life as the forerunner of the Messiah, that angel of the Lord says to Zacharias, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course he is, just like the prophets of God. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke 1.15. But then he says... He is going to go on before the Messiah. How? In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It almost sounds like Micah, the passage that we read before. But John's going to be greater than that. He's going to be the greatest born of women. He's going to be Elijah, if you will, the forerunner of the Lord. By the way, it is very poignant when you look at Luke 1.18. Zacharias, who is an old man and who does not have a son, asks exactly the same question to the angel of the Lord that Abraham asked to God in Genesis 15. Zacharias says, how do I know that this is going to be true? What you say about my having a son and about him being filled with power by the Spirit and being the forerunner of the Lord. How am I going to know that this is true? And in verse 19, this is how the angel of the Lord answers for the first time he identifies himself. And he says, this is how you're going to know I am Gabriel. Now, my friends, the last time you saw Gabriel in the Bible was Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had been crying, been reading the scroll of Jeremiah, and he, he realized that Jeremiah had prophesied Israel would be in exile for 70 years. And he looked at his watch and he realized we've been here almost six decades. This is, we're coming up on the end of the exile. And if he had been a spiritual midget like me, he would have started dancing a jig and saying, we're going home. But that's not what he does. He says, Lord, you sent us into exile because of our sin. And even here in exile, we haven't learned our lesson. Grant us repentance. Turn our hearts back to you. Convict us of sin. Forgive us. Please be faithful to your word. Bring us home, Lord. And in the middle of that prayer, Daniel tells us that God sent Gabriel to him to tell him that God had heard his prayer. And when Gabriel comes to him, do you remember what Gabriel tells him? Daniel, because of your prayer, I'm sending the Messiah into the world to die for your sins. And now, when Zacharias says, how how do I know that this is going to be so? Here's the answer. Because I am Gabriel. And your son 
is going to be the forerunner of the one that I told Daniel half a millennium ago was going to be sent into the world for the saving of your sins. That's how you know. Because I'm Gabriel. And then Gabriel goes to Mary. And we're still in Luke chapter 1. And she's puzzled. How, how can a virgin have a child who's going to be the Messiah? And Gabriel's got an answer. Luke 1, 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Well, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit will accomplish this. And so it will not surprise you that Jesus, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it will not surprise you that Jesus, full of the Spirit will be led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and there he will be tempted. And where, whereas Adam falls in one temptation, in a garden of perfection, Jesus, in a howling wilderness, three times refutes the evil one with these words, it is written. And how does he come back? Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Turn forward to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke part 2. And Jesus will say there to his disciples, Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Peter will describe Jesus' ministry this way in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Turn with me there. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Paul will even say, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul will even say, that Christ Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It will then not surprise you to find Paul giving this benediction in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that... By the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And Paul, speaking of what Christ had accomplished through his ministry in Romans 15, verses 18 and 19, says this, By the power of signs and wonders, by the 
power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul will characterize his ministry this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And he will pray this for the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Please turn with me there. That according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened. How? With power through his spirit in your inner being. He describes the results and effects of his ministry to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, this way. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So, here it is in sum. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is indeed depicted as the power of the church. Whoever came up with the title that I was assigned is a genius. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is indeed transcanonically depicted as the power of the church. But why and in what way? Now that's my introduction. I want you to see two things. And these two things I want you to see before we really attend closely to Galatians 5, 13 to 26. Two things. Let me tell you what they are ahead of time so you can be perking on them. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant is depicted as the fulfillment of a promise that is older than Jeremiah 31. The the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, which is the power of the church, is depicted as the fulfillment of a promise that is older than Jeremiah 31. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It's quite remarkable. I was thinking about this as Al expounded Matthew 16 last night. Peter, who rightly identified Christ as the Messiah and the son of the living God. Yet when Christ began to teach them immediately after that, that he had to go to Jerusalem and he had to suffer many things and he had to be crucified and killed. Peter, of course, rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter, by the way, pastors, do you see how important and pastoral that rebuke from Jesus to Peter was? Without that rebuke, this sermon in Acts chapter 2 never gets preached. If if Peter isn't straightened out on that, he is a wreck as a pastor. He's he's not going to preach the truth. Because Jesus loved him, he had to rebuke him. He had to be straightened out on this. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up. He goes to Joel 2. He says, what you're seeing today is actually the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And he says, I want to tell you something. Look at verse 22. 
Jesus of Nazarene, who was attested to you by God. And verse 23, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to, a, to the cross by godless men and put him to death. It's remarkable, isn't it? He says, God planned this. Jesus was not a victim of your designs. Jesus himself said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. That's why he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He decides when he's going to die. Nobody but him. He decides when he's going to die. Why? Because this was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But then Peter says, and you nailed him to the cross by the hands of sinless men. And if I had been there, I would have said, Peter, can I just ask a real quick question? How, how, just, just explain how God's sovereignty and our responsibility fits together. But for Peter, it's just there. God's sovereign. We're responsible. God predestined this. We did it. We're responsible. And then he shows that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he explains what Jesus was doing in the world. And then he concludes, look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they were cut to the quick. You know, we've been waiting for the Messiah to come for 600 years, for 1,000 years, for 2,000 years. We've been waiting for him to come and we killed him. What do we do? And Peter says, look, it's, it's glorious. Verse 38. Repent. That's what you do. <laughs> because here's the good news. He died in order that your sins would be forgiven. You've got to put all your hope in him. The one you killed is your only hope. And his killing is the basis of your hope as you trust in him. Repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is. Notice, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then these strange words, for the promise is for you. Now, what? So, <clears throat> we're to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And we'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because the promise is to us. What promise? What promise? Well, context is the rule of interpretation. Has, has Luke mentioned this idea of the promise anywhere else before? Yes, he has. Turn back to Luke chapter 24. It's after the road to Emmaus. Jesus is with the disciples. He really goes over the same grounds with the disciples that he went over with the two disconsolate disciples on the road to Emmaus. We read in Luke 24, 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he said to them, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins 
should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Do you realize that Jesus had already said the whole of Acts chapter 2 in verse 47 of Luke 24? He'd said the whole of the chapter right there. You are witnesses of these things. And now I am sending the promise of my father upon you. What? You're sending the promise of your father. What's that? Well, turn over to Acts chapter 1. And gathering them together, verse 4, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised. What, what was it? Which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So now we've got the promise of the Father and we've got the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and we've got Peter in Acts chapter 2 saying that we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and we'll receive the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you. What is this promise of the Father? The Apostle Paul tells you point blank in Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 to 15. Turn with me there. Christ, Galatians 3.13 redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you see that, brothers? The giving of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, the fulfillment of the promise of the Father to you in Christ. This, the ministry of the Spirit is not a subsequent second blessing given to super Christians. The ministry of the Spirit is the proof and the substance that the Abrahamic promises are yours. Yea and amen in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of the Father. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the promise of God to Abraham so that the inheritance of the covenant of Abraham comes to all who believe Jew and Gentile. That's the first thing that I want you to see. The pouring out of the Spirit in the new covenant is depicted as the fulfillment of a promise older than Jeremiah 31. It is the promise of Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. It is the promise and covenant of God with Abraham. That's what you see. That's what's empowering your ministry. A promise that is 4,000 years old that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ empowers your ministry. Now, what does it do? Here's the second point. The role of the Holy Spirit 
in that new covenant ministry is to seal and confirm the promises to the believer and to secure them in the sanctification that those promises entail. The role of the Holy Spirit is to seal and confirm those promises to the believer and to secure them in the sanctification that those promises entail. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And once again, you'll read this. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit, his name has even been attached to the promise of the Father. So he's called the Holy Spirit of promise. You've been sealed in him. This is not a subsequent secondary blessing. This means that you are in reception of the promises that God has made to you, which are yea and amen in Christ, which he promised to our father Abraham, the father of all who believe. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit assures us of our inheritance in Christ, our reception of the Abrahamic promises. And at the heart of those promises is this promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so the wonderful thing about this passage is there's a play on words with inheritance. Look at Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, he's just been talking about your inheritance in verse 14. Now he's talking about his inheritance. So we know in the Abrahamic covenant, you get an inheritance But did you know that in the Abrahamic covenant, God gets an inheritance? Do you know what God's inheritance is? You. Have you ever wondered, what does God want out of salvation? What does God want out of my salvation? And the answer is, he wants you. He looks all over the known universe and the unknown universe. And he says, the the thing that I want... Is my blood-bought people. That's what I want. I want you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be your inheritance. You will be my inheritance. The Spirit seals that, marks that, confirms that, assures you of that. You, by grace, by the blood of Christ, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit are a child of God, an inheritor, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. The Spirit, oh, that is needed for the work of the, the ministry of the church. If the church doesn't know that, we're crippled. Second, the Holy Spirit empowers our sanctification so that our enjoyment 
of the Abrahamic blessings and responsibilities are realized. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I really am getting to Galatians 5. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 3, one of my favorite prayers in all the Bible. We've already read part of it. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, look at this passage in this prayer. There are four distinct clauses They're all tied together with a henna. There's a causative connection. So it's a compounding prayer. There are four parts, but it's all leading in the same direction. Part one, verse 16, that you would be strengthened with power by the Spirit in the inner man. Part two, verse 17, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Part three, end of verse 17, all the way to the beginning of verse 19, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. End of verse 19, fourth part, that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. So you're strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ will dwell in your heart by faith, so that you will know, know a love, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God. Notice what's happening here. The work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Why do you need it? Well, you know, what was Samson's last prayer? Judges 16, 28. Lord, strengthen me just one more time. Is that kind of the circumstance here? Why does Paul want you to have strength? Maybe, maybe you ought to get a little nervous about that. You getting ready to go through a trial? Is that why he wants you to have strength? Not in this prayer. The reason he wants you to be strengthened with power by the Spirit in the inner man is he knows that the Christian life is lived at the level of the heart of the desires. That's where it's won or lost. And it's not lived in our own strength. We do need strength inside, but that strength does not come from inside. We need strength put inside us that comes from outside of us. And that strength that we need inside us comes from the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit strengthens us with power in the inner man so that Christ will dwell in our hearts. In other words, so that Christ will take over our desires. We'll love the things that Jesus loves. We'll hate the things that Jesus hates. We'll we'll long for the things that Jesus longs for. We'll care about the things that Jesus cares about. Instead of being controlled by desires that have been set by the world of flesh and the devil. You need the Holy Spirit for that. And then... You need the Holy Spirit so that you can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Isn't that an amazing amazing phrase? Paul prays that you would know a love that is beyond your capacity to know. By the way, is that like anything else? He says one other thing like that. Philippians, that God would grant you the peace that passes understanding. So he, he wants you to have the shalom that passes understanding, and he wants you to know the love that surpasses understanding. And then what does that do? End of verse 19, it fills you up to all the fullness of God. What in the world does that mean? It means 
that you become what God created and redeemed you to be. You remember in the garden, the serpent in the second temptation says, Eve, the reason that God told you not to eat that fruit is because he knows that when you eat it, you will become like him. What should Eve and Adam have said to the serpent? What? What do you mean we'll become like him? Want to take a look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28, serpent? We already are like him. We are made in the image and likeness of God. Look over this whole terrestrial ball serpent and you won't find anything in this world more like God than we are. We are his image. What do you mean we'll become like God? But they they took the bait. And when they ate, did they become more like God? No. They became less like God. The image was not erased, but it was effaced. It was not lost. We know that from Genesis 9, but it was marred. And in salvation, we're not only forgiven, but God by his Holy Spirit goes about the work of restoring us so that we are finally again like our heavenly father. And the Holy Spirit is necessary for that work. Now, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. All Paul is doing in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26 is working out what we just saw in the prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. So what does it look like when the Holy Spirit strengthens you with power in your inmost being and Christ dwells in your heart by faith and you are rooted and grounded in love and you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and you're filled up to all the fullness of God? This is what it looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How? What's the next phrase? If we live by the Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is the power of the church. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So, Pastor, you want Christ to be formed in your people? You preach the Spirit's word and watch him do the work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you have been planning in your purposes our redemption and our sanctification from the foundation of the world. And you've revealed that in your word. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.